This is the 3D Pod, your number one source for 3D printing news, analysis, and insight from 3dprint.com. Now, here are your hosts, Joris Peels and Maxwell Bogue. Hello, everyone. My name is Joris Peels, and this is another episode of the 3D Pod. Welcome, and, and with me, as always, is Maxwell Vogue. Hey, Joris. How you doing? I'm doing well, Max. How are you doing? I'm good, thanks. Who do we have on the pod today? Well, we have Douglas Hoffman, who's a principal at NASA's Jet Propulsion Laboratory and also at uh, the California Institute of Technology. So I did not even know they had unruly children at JPL, <laughs> but he works at JPL and he founded the metallurgy facility and the co-development, uh, he co-founded the materials development and manufacturing technology group and also co-founded the additive manufacturing center all at JPL. And he's also uh, one of the leading scientists worldwide in uh, what's called either uh, what was called bulk metallic glasses or uh, amorphous metals. So that's also really interesting. Uh, JPL itself and also uh, NASA itself has played a huge role in additive manufacturing, kind of pioneering e-beam electron beam technologies for use in space, pioneering printers in space, also pioneering parts for uh, propulsion for components and for uh, a lot of things and also making the business case essentially and saying to people like hey we can develop parts that are equal to cast and uh, forge parts in, in performance and that take us less money and less time to do so that's, that's a very exciting uh, group of people and we're very happy uh, today to welcome um, uh, Doug Hoffman to to uh, uh, to the 3D pod. All right good morning thank you very much so before I get started just standard boilerplate all uh, opinions are my own and don't represent the official opinion of NASA, JPL, or Caltech. Uh, but it's a pleasure being here. So thank you for inviting me. Yeah, thanks. Thanks for coming. No, thanks, thanks for coming so up. much. I'm, I've been a huge fan of yours for a long time uh, for the the bug metallic glasses work you do. So I think I think I, I for one we want to start. And this is not only because I own bugmetallicglasses.com. Uh, <laughs> 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 but uh, I would like to start with bulk metallic glasses. Or, uh, like, what are they? I think it's one of the most interesting metals, uh, materials out there at the moment. Bulk metallic glasses, they're you know, difficult for you know, people without uh, a background in metallurgy to understand because there's a lot of different names for them, but they're, they're amorphous metals. They're, they're metals that the atomic arrangement of atoms is random, similar to uh, glass that you'd find in like a window pane. Um, so when you uh, cool a metal down so that the atoms don't arrange themselves into the normal crystalline lattices that most metals do, you can make a glass. And so, uh, you know, these materials are, they're metals, they're, they're not transparent, they look like metals, but if you looked at the atomic structure, all random atoms, if you heat it up, there's a glass transition temperature, just like many plastics and oxide glasses, and you can thermoplastically form or blow mold uh, metallic glasses. So they have multiple names. Um, you know, bolt metallic glass is um, the name that describes the property of them being glass. Amorphous metal is the same. It's a, a synonym for metallic glass. And it just means that um, the atoms are amorphous. They're not crystalline. And there's also, you know, sort of trade names like liquid metal. Um, and that refers to the fact that the uh, atoms retain the structure of the liquid, but in the solid another way of saying that the atoms are random so all these materials you could google them uh and you could see you know identical uh returns but with different names depending on what you search for 
Well, that was a case of 3D printing as well, right? We had like seven different technologies, all the same thing. Yeah, but it's, and, uh, yeah like, no, work. no, what you're doing is different than what I'm doing. You're doing DMLS. <laughs> I'm doing laser powder bed fusion. They're doing selective laser melting. Yeah. yeah it's, and, uh, and the other guys are doing laser cusing. Yeah. Laser cusing was yeah, my favorite. I use nine <laughs> lasers, so it's different. <laughs> yeah, you're yeah. basically trying to get around other people's trademarks, yeah. so that's why you name yeah. it something different. Yeah. Not exactly the same here. You're trying to get around different names for the same thing. So, yeah. so yeah, what? But, and and the, the, interesting, oh, the interesting thing, of course, is that bulk metallic glasses can be was well, difficult to manufacture them generally, but we can make them with 3D printing, right? And that, that leads to. So why would you want to do this in a space context? To me, it's like the idea is having a gears that lasts much, much longer than, than conventional gears and these kind of like uh, surfaces. That's that's very, very exciting. Yeah, well, let me give you just a little background. So I did my PhD at Caltech in uh, Bill Johnson's group, who is one of the uh, you know two sort of inventors of the metallic glass field. And uh, when I uh, came to JPL uh, back in 2010, I wasn't really intending on building a bolt metallic glass lab or an amorphous metal lab per se. I was building uh, an advanced metallurgy lab, which became the metallurgy facility. So our job in that lab was to develop new materials that would allow JPL spacecraft and rovers to handle extreme environments. So when we're looking at some of the problems that rovers and spacecraft have uh, you know, with space and with planetary bodies, we tried to develop material solutions that were going to work better than the standard thing. So the metallic glasses came up almost instantly um, with the gear systems for rovers that were on Mars, uh, gears that need to operate cold without uh, lubricant if possible, um, and that were tough enough to survive the entry, descent, and landing systems. So uh, this was, you know, I was hired the year that the Mars Science Lab Curiosity was was launched. So uh, it was, you know, kind of a big deal thinking about um, how new materials could solve these problems. So it, you know, the you, you mentioned the three D printing of metallic glass, but we weren't really interested in a particular manufacturing technology. We're interested in what materials give us the ability to survive longer, so that we can do more science and amorphous metals manufactured any way uh, into, uh, into gear systems, like you mentioned, uh, could give us that advantage. So that's why we started studying them. What's so special about the performance of these materials as gears? I mean, I think the non-lubricant, especially for the Mars environment, these kind of extreme cold environments, okay, that, that, mm -hmm. that's gonna be a great plus compared to anything else. But what makes these materials so suited for things like gears? Yeah, so um, there's a couple kinds of gears that we use on uh, these rovers. There's uh, planetary gearboxes, um, mm -hmm. and there's uh, strainwave gearboxes that you would use in like robotic arms and in pick and place robots. And these are kind of different gear systems. I think uh, in general, what has what what happens with our uh, our rovers, the Curiosity and Perseverance, is that all the gears in them are made of steel, and they're uh, they're wet lubricated to make sure they function but because of the temperatures that wet lubricant would freeze uh if you didn't heat them so we've got to use a substantial amount of power from the rtg on the rover to heat the lubricant in the gearboxes so that yeah. the gears can run without wearing down so that mm -hmm. uh, uses about 25 percent of the discretionary power of the rover just to mm -hmm. heat gearboxes and it takes about three hours so that is a frustration so the motivation mm -hmm. to try to switch uh, wet lubricated steel gears out with mm -hmm. unlubricated or dry lubricated other gears uh, is high. Now, of course, you could have used ceramic gears, but mm -hmm. as you saw from that incredible video, 
um, that JPL posted about the rover landing on the surface. We're nervous about that sort of um, <laughs> violent landing breaking yeah. the ceramic gears. So we're looking for gears that are maybe 20 times tougher than ceramics, but that have the ability to have wear resistance similar to ceramics. And that's metallic glass. So surprisingly, the, the glass gears that we proposed for building gearboxes out of, they're much tougher than ceramics, um, uh, mm -hmm. but they have similar wear resistance. So you can make gearboxes that will run without having to conventionally lubricate them. Uh, they'll run dry. And that you know, has a lot of advantages for space, uh, for rovers. Um, so uh, you know, those, those gearboxes have been you know, tested without lubricant on them at very cold temperatures and cryogenic chambers. And we're currently working on infusing those gearboxes into a lunar lander for a robotic arm that will go to um, mm -hmm. a very cold location at the, you know, the lunar North Pole area. So, um, yeah, it's all about mm -hmm. being able to eliminate the need for heating lubricant. And could you How, also then make use, users for end of arm tooling and stuff like that or end effectors? It doesn't really not make sense for that kind of stuff. Or... So, yeah, for, you know, drive wheels, we're, we're typically using the uh, planetary gearboxes, but in the end effectors mm -hmm. and the robotic arms, that's where you need the high torque, low backlash strain wave gears. And metallic bosses also make wonderful uh, strain wave gears uh, because they have very high uh, elastic limits. Uh, they can be injected molded into complex parts and they can run also without lubricant uh, extremely cold because they don't get brittle when they get uh, low temperature. So it makes them kind of ideal for these uh, space robotic uh, arms and drive systems. Uh, but of course, you know, you have gearboxes and all kinds of spinning mechanisms and so on on spacecraft and antennas and so on. So th they have a lot of potential uh, future uses. How how difficult is this material to work with? It sounds like a dream material, but. <laughs> mm -hmm. So like every new material, there are challenges and there's a long lead time between when you first invent a material and when it flies. So we started developing the metallic glass gears back in 2010, and we're only now just integrating those gearboxes into uh, flight systems for the lunar surface. So, um, you know, with every, you know, wild new material, there are new um, things you have to learn about uh, manufacturing them uh, and then qualifying them for spacecraft. And so the lesson with metallic glass is, you know, trying to get amorphous glassy metals into space applications is sort of a parallel lesson that we have been learning with metal 3D printing and all the mm -hmm. materials, some standard materials, some new materials, as we're trying to also infuse them into spacecraft, all the same sort of uh, you know rules and, and barriers uh, apply along the way. What temperature does the amorphous, this material like glass transition at? At what temperature are you extruding it? Ah, it's a good point. So if you're going to, so. I, I guess I didn't answer your question all the way. When you're manufacturing metallic glasses, you have a bunch of options. You can melt the alloy, take it to above the liquidus, and you can injection mold it. And there are injection molding um, machines uh, that just take the molten liquid, put it in a shop sleeve, and inject it into your final part. Um, you can also um, thermoplastically form it. So, by the way, the liquidus temperature, for some alloys, it's 600 C. For others, it's, you know, up to 1,000 C. Okay. So, the 400 right. win degree window between 600 and 1,000, and you typically injection mold at 1,000 or above. Um, thermoplastic forming or blow molding, which can also be used, uh, you do that between 300 and 400 degrees C, so it's much lower, oh, and the viscosity is, is much higher. 
so you have to use you know high pressure equipment but you can you can blow mold parts like you would blow mold a milk bottle and that is a, mm -hmm. a you know crazy way wow. of doing it and then if you're doing yeah. 3d printing typically you're making the powder and then you're doing just standard ah, okay. laser powder bed fusion Got where you're it. melting okay. you you can do extrusion thermoplastically with these alloys that has been demonstrated. You can also do cold manufacturing techniques like ultrasonic additive manufacturing, cold spray, etc. cetera. Um, so any, any of the metal 3D printing techniques with the exception of binder jetting, you can mm -hmm. use with metallic glasses. Uh, how do you finish it then? Like it, it would be a porous part, right? So how would you post finish it? How would you treat it? You just hip it? Or so if you, you like... if you injection mold the metallic glass part or if you blow mold, the density is virtually fully dense. There is very limited oh porosity. So you're talking 99.9 .9 plus percent density, maybe a few uh, pores from uh, casting. If you're talking 3D printing, you can get the as printed density 99.9 .9 plus with laser powder nice. bit fusion. Uh, the metallic okay. glass is, you know, has high viscosity in the, in the liquid and you can print pretty, pretty well with it. But uh, yeah, you typically can't hip these alloys, like you said, because right. doing a hot isostatic press would crystallize the glass. And that's why uh, you can't use right. binder jetting for amorphous metals, because uh, in the process of burning out the binder and sintering, you would crystallize the metallic glass. Can you impregnate the metal the same way you do with like a sintering, like add a lubricant to it? And then back to the previous one, like, can you not impregnate the steel with some really low temperature functioning lubricant? Sorry, that's two, but <laughs> I, so yes, what you said is actually true. Um, you can add uh, carbon, for example, like uh, uh, graphite and into the metallic glass and the graphite doesn't dissolve and it stays in the glass. And then if you make parts out of it, yes, they, the graphite then becomes an internal lubricant. That is something that we have prototyped and showed actually works but we haven't yet, um, you know, got, taken that into production, but right. we know that is, that is something that works. Um, whether or not cool. you can do that with steels, I don't think so. Most likely you would dissolve the graphite. The melting temperature is much yeah, higher. Yeah, it's too high. Um, That's true. But with metallic glass, you can do that and it has been done. And, and, and do these things also have like, I mean, does it make sense for these things to do robots on earth and that kind of thing? Or is the cost picture just like, too far away for us to really be considering that. no for metallic glasses that's actually a wonderful uh, application is that you know because a lot of these gears can be injection molded or blow molded with you know commercial manufacturing technologies you can actually make gears without having to machine them or where you make them to a near net shape and then you just do touch machining on them so mm -hmm. there is a huge uh, commercial uh, terrestrial business case for low-cost robotics if you know anything about like pick and place robots, the the majority of the cost of a pick and place robot is the high precision gear system, costing anywhere from 50 to 60% of the cost of the robotic arm is the gears that go inside, the, inside of it. So uh, yeah, if you can make low cost gears that don't have to be machined, that is a potential uh, game changer, let alone all the terrestrial applications where you could run gears dry. So think about the, um, you know, in surgery robots and in the mm -hmm. food service industry where you don't want lubricants contaminating, um, you know, a patient or food, uh, you want dry lubricated uh, gearboxes. So yeah, there mm -hmm. is a lot of, and, and that goes, it's the case for most of the technology that we develop at NASA. When we're pioneering something for a spacecraft, odds are there are terrestrial 
uses for that same technology that we also try to explore as well. Like Tang, so, for example. Yeah, like Tang. <laughs> or memory foam. Uh, <laughs> so as, as obviously you're focused on the JPL uses for this, but like how, what's the process of this reaching the, the wider world? How, how can I, for example, as someone who manufactures product, start to look at this as a potential uh, technology to start implementing? Oh, well, if you're talking about amorphous metals in particular, there are a number of commercial companies now around the world in the US, in Asia, uh, uh, and in Europe um, that um, explore commercial applications for these. So um, there are many companies that one could go to to um, you know get prototypes made and right. test them out, depending on what applications you're interested in. I'm going to do that. I'm actually thinking about <laughs> lots and lots of things, of course. Now. I am. <laughs> What's your minimum wall thickness? What's yeah, your minimum right. wall thickness? That's the next question. With, with casting or with printing? With printing, probably. Both. But cast, casting also. I mean, I think I think the tiny gearboxes for medical device stuff is, is really interesting, I think. It is. Yeah. I mean, you can make very, very small parts and parts with very thin walls. You can make the walls of uh, flex blinds for strain wave gears, which mm -hmm. are um, 250 micron thick with uh, injection yeah. molding or blow okay, molding okay. either way oh wow yeah. with blow molding you can blow mold from a thin sheet so mm. um you know actually you probably can't see this we can hear it in my microphone yeah. that's a thin sheet of amorphous metal and you can blow yeah. mold that into a part and the wall thickness here yeah. is only 60 micron so if you make that into a part the wall will be less than 60 micron thick and that's easily done Wow, that's, that's really exciting. So, so Doug just showed us like a little thing. It looks like a little bit like bendy red Reynolds wrap, essentially. It's really yeah, shiny. Right? It's like a thin sheet of uh, <laughs> It's a really tiny, tiny, sh thin, shiny sheet of bendy, uh, kind of like it looks like a polymer, kind of polymer infused Reynolds wrap, let's say. Yeah, <laughs> yeah it's like and, aluminum foil or aluminum foil, depending on where you're from. But uh, yeah, yeah, you can like fold it up and roll it up, and then it will uh, return to its original shape without um, yeah. crimping. So. Wow. It's, it's very it's springy. Like, it's like reusable aluminum a, foil. A remarkable material. Yeah, right. yeah, I see like, you <laughs> touching it. I assume that there's no <laughs> harmful side effects or anything like that. There's not any crazy chemicals that you can get. So it's like a nice, safe metal. <laughs> yeah, I mean, metals are metals. So, you know, like uh, if you have a solid metal, odds are it's going to be fine to touch it. There's few exceptions, yeah. especially metals that are alloys. So these are alloys of titanium or zirconium or copper with other elements and they're perfectly safe and let's talk a little bit more about the additive side you, you explained before that you worked on additive. like mm -hmm. we always look at it like nasa kind of had to do this technology i mean you guys right. did you were looking at this like a weight saving technology that can consolidate parts that can redesign kind of like uh optimized internal uh, cavities and things like that that must be an yeah, yeah, it's a dream technology, but it was a, it must have been a, quite a struggle to get it to work. <laughs> yeah, let me uh, so give you a background on how JPL got involved, and uh, I should also mention that you know we have a, a huge group at JPL now that, that is uh, leading this effort, and we've had support to uh, to get involved in metallurgy and additive manufacturing for the last decade from not only our management at JPL but also from NASA. And now today we've got dedicated materials development and manufacturing group. We have a dedicated additive manufacturing group and we've got, you know, 50 or so engineers and scientists and mission designers around uh, JPL that use additive manufacturing. So it is kind of a wildfire that I was one of the matches that lit the wildfire and we're in California after all. Um, and, uh, and so we kind of got the ball rolling and this thing has just grown 
uh, into this giant, uh, giant activity with many people. So I sort of act sometimes as sort of the spokesperson for this because I was one of the original people. But at JPL, we started, you know, doing this kind of additive investigations back around 2009 and 2010. And a lot of the other NASA centers were already well involved with additive, particularly NASA Marshall in Huntsville, Alabama, mm -hmm. and NASA Langley in Virginia. They were doing e-beam welding and laser yeah. powder bed fusion long before us. We sort of were looking at additive not as a fundamental institutional change, but looking at how it could solve some very particular problems that we had on our Mars rover. We were looking at like how to do multi-material uh, joints for the fluid transfer tubes on that sky crane that lowered uh, uh, curiosity to the surface. And we were trying to figure out if you could metal 3D print multiple materials together to get away from having to do conventional welding. So we sort of got into additive with a small group of us um, that were kind of doing grassroots investigations of additive with commercial partners and with uh, other national labs to try to see if it could solve some of our longstanding problems. And what we, what we saw almost immediately is that there were huge potential applications for additive, particularly in the area of multi-material 3D printing, which is where our roots are. And so over time, we started doing you know, more and more investigation into this technology, more and more people getting involved. And then eventually we decided to build our own additive manufacturing facility um, where we have polymer additive and metal additive so that we could actually fuse those into the spacecraft ourselves. And then just a few months ago, we had the huge success with infusion of 11 additive parts that are on the Perseverance rover. Um, and um, one of them is prominently displayed on the front of the rover in the Pixel instrument. And then um, others are buried inside the MOXIE experiment, which you probably read was the first ever demonstration of in situ resource utilization on another planet when we converted uh, carbon dioxide into oxygen on the surface of Mars and the preheater assembly inside of MOXIE was uh, 3D printed out of Inconel uh, from JPL. So really exciting. Yeah, so that's like, so the MOXIE parts were Inconel? And some yeah, they're Inconel 625, right? yeah. Yeah, so the, the pixel parts, um, those were uh, printed on an RCAM machine uh, and uh, they were tie parts and it's basically the dust cover for pixel. This is a part, it's like, you know, a, a foot uh, size and it's very thin walled, but there's regions of it where there's actually thicker parts. So, you know, there's a cap on the end that's thicker than the wall. So it was really hard to make from sheet metal. And then it's got a bracket that's hollow around the edge of mm -hmm. the instrument. So it was an ideal part for, um, for uh, metal 3D printing. And the company Calram, who uh, printed it on their RCAM, they um, were flight qualified with uh, TIE 6.4. So um, we had that part printed. It was uh, chem etched and then uh, eventually uh, painted and integrated into Pixel. The interior parts from Moxie, those were uh, TIE 6, or sorry, uh, Inconel 625 uh, printed on the EOS M290, um, were mm -hmm. uh, then flight qualified in that um, particular uh, application. And that, those were both very late stage infusions. So the parts were, uh, were point design qualified. Um, so after you have some listeners that are really interested, like how did JPL qualify those parts? They were point designed. Yeah. So they were late stage fixes for problems in manufacturing uh -huh. um, that needed uh, a solution. And uh, so the parts were printed and tested for that application and then put in the, in the rover. Is that done a lot or is that really like kind of like a audible kind of scramble Hail Mary kind of thing? <laughs> 
<laughs> so I think what we typically refer to that as a phase D implementation. And that is an <laughs> oh crap while you're building the spacecraft kind of infusion. And to, from my experience in uh, 11 years at NASA, those are the best chances to get new technology implemented. So if you've you know, got your technology paralleling the flight version and then the mm -hmm. flight version breaks down at the last minute and you're there with the solution and they can test your solution one-to-one, -one, um, that is the best opportunity to get something in there because you avoid a lot of the bureaucracy that would sit in front of you if you were going to select that application from the beginning. If, you, if we had designed Moxie with 3D printing in mind from the very beginning, then we would have had to go through the, um, the entire flight qualification, the basis allowables, all of the expense of doing the fatigue testing and the fracture testing testing and so on to be able to make sure that those parts were there. When you do a point design, you can come in at the last minute and solve a problem and the, the mission will, will give you a waiver to, to use your application uh, in that case. Mm -hmm. and, uh, and so those are, those are the best. Those are the ones that mm -hmm. technologists like me dream about. Mm -hmm. And and also, do you see like this expanding gradually? Do you see the next rover, let's say, have more of these parts? Would you expect them to have more money, more parts? I mean, I would expect it, yes. Uh, and I'd expect it to be, you know, thought of from the very beginning. So, um, mm -hmm. you know, instead of late stage additions, um, you know, we are interested in, in, you know, working with our designers to uh, have parts utilizing additive all the way from the beginning. And it's not just for what I consider to be mundane things like brackets and things like that, but multifunctional parts where the additive adds value that you couldn't get with traditional manufacturing. And so that's what we saw with Moxie and with Pixel. Moxie, the, one of the parts had an internal passage through it that was impossible mm -hmm. machine. And Pixel had this very hollow uh, mm -hmm. uh, you know, frame around the edge that would be impossible to machine. So now in a future, you would expect having heat exchangers embedded into the metal parts or um, you would have some sort of multifunctionality that is that is into those parts and that's where you know additive makes a huge difference it's not about just um, reducing mass through topology optimization it's about adding something unique that uh, that you can't do conventionally mm -hmm. yeah I really think that the, the I like this is parts consolidation part and also like if we look at for example what we call in the in the, the FDM world like uh, the infill, right? If we talk about the structures we can make inside in, in between the walls of a part and, and, and making structures there making the changing the wall thicknesses and densities there, I think and apart from just making yeah. gradient parts generally, I think just making parts, I'm going to be really confusing now, <laughs> apart from using no, gradient processes to make, yeah. And part of making gradient processes to make parts, we can also make parts more gradient, right? Yeah. You know, my, my uh, coworker and good friend, uh, Scott Roberts, uh, who's also in the same group as me, he has been working for the last several years on heat exchanger technology that uses what, like you said, an infill, but it's an infill that is porous material strategically designed for doing heat exchangers. And they haven't, you know, published a lot of their work, but I, I've seen their work and I've seen, you know, what's uh, going on in commercial industry. And it is one of the most exciting things that I've ever seen turning 3D printed parts into heat exchangers. So um, there is, you know, some information available uh, on that work, but uh, it's just, it is so amazing. And I assume that there are, you know, a lot of other companies, uh, big space companies and so on that are similarly developing, um, you know, uh, custom heat exchangers. 
And if, if designed properly, you can you can do orders of magnitude improvement in thermal management by using additive with strategic infills. So uh, yeah. from everything I've seen in additive, that is the that is the area that I'm most uh, excited about for the future. Yeah, and specifically in heat heat exchangers, not like heat sinks, for example, or something uh, similar. Like, yeah, like you know, uh, you're talking pr like pressure systems too. So mm -hmm. pressurized fluids with phase changes and things like that, mm -hmm. not just uh, mm -hmm. you know fins. Mm -hmm. Okay, okay. Right. That's that's that could be very. I can imagine for you guys it could be very exciting to everything that moves, everything you want to get to move, everything you want to articulate, whatever you could you could optimize it. Well, for us, it's about being able to manage power um, on rovers and on spacecraft. So if you have a small spacecraft, for example, mm -hmm. a CubeSat, if you will, or something slightly bigger, you really want to run a high power bus on it. You want to run a you want to run hundreds of watts of power on your small spacecraft. So that you can generate, you know, what we call billion-dollar class science for the cost of a CubeSat, the tens to, you know, tens of millions of dollars in the CubeSat. But to do that, you're you have to manage your heat really well um, when you've got mm -hmm. point sources of heat that are very hot and you're in space. So being able to develop uh, pump fluid loops, for example, that are integrated into your structural chassis, now you're able to run your spacecraft with higher power, which allows you to get. Um, you know, bigger science out of a smaller package. So part of things that we would like to do in the future is get more distributed Earth orbiting spacecraft that are constantly looking down at Earth, but with powerful instruments on them uh, cheaply. So this is where additive will play a big role in the future for NASA is in the Earth orbiting uh, spacecraft area. Yeah. And the heat exchangers, was that like with metal foams? Because I've been I mean, trying yeah, to think about... <laughs> yeah, I'm yeah, trying to think of. Sentence, sorry. Yeah, I was trying to make of think of like <laughs> making the borders out of 3D printed things, like making like a, a honeycomb structure, and then putting directed metal foams in them. I, I was thinking about that actually. You so. can print them all embedded. Like you don't have to yeah. do two materials together. If you're good enough with powder bed fusion, you can print. You know, you can print uh, uh, fluid channels. You can print porous heat exchangers. You can print mm -hmm. solid material. You can even print like, you know, cavities for electronics and other kinds of things. You can do all mm -hmm. kinds of really clever things with, with laser powder bed fusion, with uh, direct energy deposition, ultrasonic additive manufacturing, cold spray. Mm -hmm. These are things that allow you to just do really incredible things when it comes to uh, mm -hmm. thinking about CubeSat chassis and, and heat exchangers. So, yeah, those are areas mm -hmm. that us and our contemporaries are, are working in, you know, uh, heavily. Yeah, it's really interesting that you mentioned uh, your ultrasonic additive manufacturing. That's like Fabrisonic, essentially. I mean, I think it's a technology name, but mm -hmm. they're the only ones doing it at the moment that I know of, at least. Yeah, and, uh, <laughs> you're right. <laughs> and so it's like it's like loam that doesn't burn. Uh, is the uh, so it's like it's like they they make la layer upon layer of uh, metal that they sandwich, and then they 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 ultrasonically join these layers without actually heating the the material, so it doesn't change the the microstructure. It doesn't make it yeah. So it yeah, means that they can work. Yeah, manufacturing. It's in the class of sort of um, below melting temperature. They call it cold, but it's not exactly cold. But it's, um, you know, you're, you're not melting. So there are classes of additive manufacturing where you're not melting. So ultrasonic additive, uh, cold spray. Um, uh, there is, um, uh, I, my mind just went, uh, no, my mind went blank. Uh, 
so cold spray uam and oh a friction stir additive manufacturing oh, that was one i forgot these, these these are all processes that are below the the melting temperature technically and so we have explored ultrasonic uh consolidation and additive manufacturing for a long time and we started working with nasa langley a long time ago who had an ultrasonic welding device from the old edison welding institute out of ohio state so we've been looking at that as a potential uh, application for a long time, particularly because that technology was one of the first technologies available that allowed you to, to 3D print aluminum 6061 and 7075, the, the aerospace aluminum alloys. And because you weren't melting, you weren't dealing with the hot cracking issues that have been uh, you know, difficult for powder bed fusion and directed energy deposition. But moreover, you could embed things in those structures, particularly cooling loops, so one of the things that we've been doing uh, kind of for years uh, is developing kind of large parts in collaboration with Fabrisonic to uh, make uh, heat exchangers on large scales that have kind of benchmark uh, properties. So the way that we would normally put cooling loops on a large piece of aluminum, like for a rover, is by epoxying on the physical cooling line onto the aluminum chassis. And of course, now you're trying to flow heat through the insulating epoxy that is connecting right. the two. Well, if you just make them all metal um, by embedding the cooling loop into the, the metal chassis itself, you get a thousand times better uh, heat exchanging. So, you, you know, that technology has been one that we have been working on for, uh, for quite a long time with, um, with Rover uh, and large spacecraft panels in mind. Yeah, it's, it's very exciting. I think it really, Fabrisonic is really way misunderstood or like underutilized as well. I think it's, I think there's so many people that could really be doing breakthrough stuff by combining metals and combining different materials and getting completely new properties that you can't, like you said, you can embed strain sensors in it. You can put other sensors in it. You could stop the process essentially to put whatever electronics in it if you want. Uh, I think it's really exciting yeah. technology really. Well, I think what I find, you know, not to single out any particular companies, but there are many additive technologies that have a solution uh, to a lot of problems. So uh, I, I would argue many of the additive manufacturing technologies out there are underutilized. Um, a lot of them have unique processes that are specifically would solve problems that we run into. Um, and we know because we prototyped all kinds of applications using virtually every additive technology that's out there. And many of them we find, um, you know, they really give us a two X improvement or more over, you know, the way we're doing it now. Mm -hmm. Of course, now I just, I just now figured out, of course, that, that also that with the ultrasonic uh, additive manufacturing, you can also make bulk metallic glasses. <laughs> Yeah, that's that's something that we developed early with uh, NASA Langley. We were looking at whether or not that could be a technique which would get around um, our difficulties with making thick parts out of weak glass forming alloys. So we are also interested in doing claddings where we could clad like an aluminum structure with an amorphous metal to make it more wear resistant. So uh, us and the team over at NASA Langley started doing some early experiments on um, on doing cladding of iron based and zirconium based mm -hmm. amorphous metal, and it, it mm -hmm. you know it works pretty well. Um, of course, as you start making the part thicker, that's where we ran into uh, you know some issues with um, you know the tearing and, and the bonding. Ultimately, we were hoping that we could make plates that were thick enough that we could like wire EDM uh, gears out mm -hmm. of them from uh, alloys mm -hmm. that would be otherwise 
uh, too mm -hmm. difficult to manufacture conventionally, like nickel-based mm -hmm. metallic glasses or iron-based mm -hmm. metallic glasses. If we could just make three millimeter thick plates of them, then you could use um, our, our incredible machining capabilities at JPL uh, to to make uh, gears and other parts out of them. Yeah. It sounds really very exciting. What, what if I was like a materials manufacturing company or maybe an OEM and I'm like, oh my God, I, I want to get involved with JPL or something. How does that work even? I mean, how would you work with companies? Do you reach out or is there like kind of like co-research stuff you can do together? Or how does this work? Yeah, so one of the things I've been most impressed with JPL is the way that we interact with uh, commercial industry and with universities and other national labs too. So, um, you know, JPL is a federally funded research and development center. So we are managed by the California Institute of Technology. Um, and so that is, um, you know, that gives us a, kind of a, a more unique situation compared to most of the other NASA centers. We're very academic. We do a lot of fundamental research. So typically what we will do is reach out to companies where we see that they have a new capability or we do partnerships with faculty members that are doing really innovative research. And then, you know, we say, show us like what you can do. And, uh, and uh, then we'll take their parts, we'll test them, we'll give them feedback. And then, um, you know, if the applications look promising. We'll try to get funding to build prototypes out of that technology. So what JPL serves is that rare uh, TRL kind of three to six area mm -hmm. that so many people struggle with you know academia so much works in the trl one to three invent the thing show that it doesn't break physics make a gross prototype of it but that's as far as it typically goes um and then commercial industry is really only interested in touching things that are like you know i i need to put this into a car or into an airplane and that's trl you know seven eight nine um so trying to get technologies that have been demonstrated but are not yet uh, proven in a flight system, that's really where JPL excels is in the TRL, um, you know, four or five, six demonstration because of we have access to these kinds of facilities that can test out materials for spacecraft. Okay. And TRL for, uh, yeah, so it's, it's a U.S. government system, like technology readiness level. It basically assesses how ready a technology is for commercialization. It goes one, one to yeah. I think nine, I think, is a commercial or something like that. Or something like That's that. right. And um, yeah. just for the people who are not familiar with that term. And, yeah, and sorry. what if I was, <laughs> no, 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 sorry. it's a, it's a uh, there's a lot of people from all over the place who re, uh, listen to this. So, um, and so what if I wanted to work for you guys? What if I wanted to, I was uh, somebody interested in additive manufacturing and I wanted to be an employee, right? How would yeah. I go about that? So I guess, what, what do I have, what kind of puzzle piece do I have to look like essentially? So yeah, for, I guess the answer to your first question is how do you work with JPL as an OEM or as a company out mm -hmm. there? And, you know, you reach out to one of us uh, from the additive manufacturing or materials development group, and we mm -hmm. will start working with you right away um, to try to assess your technology and whether or not it has needs. Uh, JPL is also an incredible place for uh, for students, uh, for interns and for postdocs and for uh, for new employees. And so, you know, um, we have a very robust uh, education office and also, um, you know, a new, uh, you know, a hiring office where we hire uh, young scientists and young engineers. So uh, JPL has, you know, a public website where you can go search for JPL jobs and uh, and apply. And we also have an incredibly robust internship program through our education office where you can apply for internships. So um, we are 
probably one of the best places to go for an internship. And we host typically before COVID, you know, thousand interns a year kind of level. Um, and uh, you can tell lab changes. You'll notice one day in the summer that I'm the oldest person on lab when I go to the cafeteria um, because of all the interns that are there. Um, and we also, over the, you know, the last five years or so, have just been hiring an enormous amount of young, uh, young engineers. Uh, and that's been really refreshing to see um, just these top-notch uh, young engineers and scientists uh, being hired. And another thing about being a federally funded research and development centers, we also have a lot of um, uh, foreign nationals uh, and uh, uh, people who are, you know, um, legal permanent residents uh, working at, at JPL. So that's kind of unique from many other uh, government uh, uh, entities is that we're very multinational uh, institution. Mm -hmm. and, and, and where do you hope to go? Like if you're looking at the next couple of years of your, 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 your time at JPL, so what are you going to, what do you hope to accomplish? And where do you hope to, to get to? So obviously, you know, at any given time, we are planning and preparing for future missions. So this, kind of goes completely unseen from the public. But of course, every time we fly a mission, there's 10 to 20 years of pre-work that happens before the mission. So um, mostly what we've been working on right now is the follow-on to the um, Perseverance landing. So if you recall, Perseverance is the first step in what's called the Mars sample return campaign. So Perseverance is going to be uh, digging and caching samples on Mars and then leaving them behind. And we're going to be sending another uh, rover in collaboration with um, many uh, countries and European Space Agency in particular. Um, we're going to be sending another rover to go pick up those samples. Then we're going to be launching those samples into orbit, capturing them in orbit, breaking the chain so we don't contaminate Earth with Mars, returning to Earth, and then re-entering Earth's atmosphere with the samples that Perseverance is uh, is um, going to be uh, caching. So sometime in the 2030s, uh, the samples that Perseverance will be digging over the next couple months will be sitting in a lab, probably at Johnson Space Center, um, uh, allowing us to look at the history of Mars. So that is kind of the big campaign that's going on right now. It's um, a long-term plan. There are <laughs> That is a long-term plan. We, of course, have many missions that are be, that are in various stages of development that we'll be launching. We've got lots of Earth science measurements that are doing, you know, measuring climate change. Um, we've got um, lots of planned missions where we're, you know, thinking about going to Europa and Enceladus, the moons of uh, Jupiter and Saturn. We're planning lots of um, activities on the moon to support the Artemis program. So JPL will be a critical part of the support for the human landing program with our robotic expertise working in conjunction with the astronauts on the lunar surface. So we're not without lots of things going on in the background. <laughs> <laughs> definitely, definitely. All right, Doug, uh, thank you so much for, for being with us today. Uh, it was great to hear from you and hear what, uh, what you're up to. Yeah, it's a pleasure talking to you guys. I really appreciate it. And of course, as always, I would like to, uh, you know, thank JPL for letting uh, me come talk to you and for the huge and amazing team of scientists and engineers that I have working uh, around me and that support me and that I work for. So um, it is a real team effort at JPL. And that's probably one of the best things about working there is the, uh, the group effort that we have kind of pushing these exciting space applications forward. Right, cool. Thanks a lot, Doug, for attending. And uh, Max, thank you for being here as well. My pleasure as always, Joyce. Thanks for hosting.
and uh, you max and and you thank you so much for listening i hope you enjoy this uh and uh yeah this is a deep dive into a lot of jpl and a lot of bulk metallic glasses and exciting things like that and uh and you have a great day thank you for being here you've been listening to the 3d pod for more information on what you just heard or to subscribe visit www.3dprint.com or follow us at 3dprint underscore com.